0: So yeah, as Andy said, I have, uh, I have attended Northview for 20 plus years or so, and I uh, have been trained up there at Northview. I was an intern a number of years ago, and then uh, the Immerse program, which is the MDiv program that they, they run there, and I've had the privilege to be trained there. And so I love, even though I'm not there on staff, I'm not on staff at any church, actually, I currently work with uh, my family. I have three younger brothers. And uh, my mom and dad work in a construction company that my dad started 35 years ago. And so after uh, I finished Immerse, it was a natural transition to work with my family. Um, No, it's been uh, actually a a joy to actually work with them uh, in the last, over the last three years. But I love being able to come and use the the training that God has so graciously built into me through um, the, the ministry of Northview and through some of my other studies that I've done. And so... When the phone call comes, I I often try to see if I can make it work, where I can jump in and and preach wherever I can. Uh, We're going to be continuing in Acts this week. I know that last week Lee kind of took a a little pause uh, as he was busy with other things, but we're going to finish, or not finish Acts 2, but continue in Acts 2 this week. Um, So as part of my time at Northview, one of the things that I have to do is I would have to... Um, host the services, so much like Andy has done here, where he would, after the, the, the songs we 've sung, he would get up and make some announcements, I would have to do the same thing, and then introduce kind of what was happening with the rest of the service. and so at, at the, the campus I was at, we would often have video uh, sermons come in from the main campus. And so sometimes these would have like some minor technical glitches and they take a little bit to get going. And so I finished my announcements, kind of got the congregation ready for the sermon. And I said, yeah, we're going to turn our attention now to the sermon. And the guys in the back were like, no, we're not, not (laughs) happening right now. And I'm like, okay, um, what can I do? So I kind of like filled for like 30, 45 seconds of just kind of like meaningless babble, which, you know, I don't mind doing, I can do 30, 45 seconds. It's not a problem. And so they, they're kind of like, okay, yeah, great. Like, okay. And I'm giving them some time. And I'm like, and now, and they keep looking at me like, nope, not happening. So in my mind now, I'm like, okay, so I haven't prepared a lick of what we're about to like hear in the sermon. So I'm kind of like slowly, would you turn with me in your Bibles to this passage and we're going to read it. And so in this moment, as, as as a young intern, I'm like, what do I do? Do I like... Stop the service? Do I just pray? Do I prepare? Like, do I just like read and then try to like preach a, a like really bad sermon here in this moment? I was just like, what do I do? Thankfully, the the tech team eventually got it ready. I'd read the passage, and by the time I'd finished, they were like, yeah, it's good to go. And I was like, okay, thank you. Okay, so we watched the sermon. But this passage is one of those moments where the people have heard a sermon and now they're like, okay, what do we do? Like that's the question that these people are asking. What do we do? So before we jump into the passage, let's just kind of recap Acts 2 to kind of like ground ourselves, refresh ourselves on how we got to where we're at. So the beginning of Acts 2 starts with the apostles and the disciples are all gathered together And they're awaiting the promise of the Holy Spirit. Jesus has ascended, and before he ascended into heaven, he said, I am going to send my spirit on you. So wait for that to happen, and then begin your ministry. And so they're waiting, and they're praying, and they're gathered together. And the Holy Spirit comes upon them, descends like tongues of fire on the apostles, and they begin to speak in tongues. They speak in the languages of the people that are in Jerusalem for this massive feast week. And these people start to hear the disciples speaking in tongues. And they're like, I hear these guys speaking in my like, native language. And that's impossible because they're from Galilee. They're not from outside of Israel where I am from. And so some of these people are like, these guys are just drunk. They're just babbling. It's nothing. Others are like, yeah, I don't know if drunk people can speak other languages. And I understand it. So they are like, well, I want to hear what's going on. And so in this moment, Peter stands up. And he begins to preach the first sermon that we have recorded after christ has ascended to heaven peter begins to preach and what he says is that what is happening right now is the fulfillment of prophecy of what god had promised he would do during the days of the messiah and he quotes from joel 2 and says that in these days god would pour out his spirit on his people, and his people would speak in tongues, they would prophesy, they would dream dreams, they would have visions, and Peter is saying, this is the beginning of what God is now doing. His spirit is going to come on his people. And as Peter continues to quote Joel 2, he gets to the end of that passage, and the last line of that passage in Joel 2, Peter says and quotes, that all who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And it is after he reads or quotes that line that he transitions. And he now wants to answer the question, who is this Lord? Right? If, if you're supposed to call upon the name of the Lord, who's the Lord? Because I want to be saved. So I need to know who this Lord is. And so he begins to show how Jesus Christ is the Lord that was promised and prophesied about. How Jesus Christ fulfills the prophecies of the Messiah, and how God has made him both Lord and Christ. And as he finishes explaining all this to the people who are gathered in Jerusalem, gathered around listening to him preach, he finishes with this line. He says, God has made Jesus Lord and Christ, whom you crucified. Peter finishes with an accusation that is right against the people that are gathered and says, you killed the one whom God made Lord in Christ. You put him on a cross, you wanted him there, and you had him hanged. And this is where that sermon ends. And now we get to our passage, Acts 2, verses 37 through 41. We're going to look at it in three ways. We're going to look at the response, the promise, and the proclamation. So I'm going to read the passage and then we'll jump into the response. Starting in verse 37. Now when they, the people that were gathered around Peter, heard what he was saying, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit for the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them saying, save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized and there were added that day about 3000 souls. So we're first going to look at the response, the first part of this passage. So when the people heard what Peter was saying, they were cut to the heart. They were devastated by the news of hearing that they had crucified the one whom God had made Lord and Christ, right? Have you ever gotten really, really terrible news, uh, a cancer diagnosis, a death in the family, something terrible, and it just takes everything out of you? Like your shoulders slump forward, your breath leaves you, you can Maybe you fall to your knees. You're cut to the heart. Your heart is devastated by this news. These are the people in this moment. They are cut to the heart. And so naturally, when, when this happens, people are like, okay, so what do I do? Right? Sometimes when this happens in our lives, we cry out, God, what am I supposed to do with this? And these people, they cry out to Peter, what do we do? And so Peter stands up. He's just finished and he's like, Sweet. Another sermon. Good preacher never wastes a moment to preach. So he says, stands up and commands the people, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ. So Peter calls for a twofold response. As these people have been cut to the heart, he says, first repent and then be baptized. So let's look at repentance So when Peter calls people to repent, we need to understand what he means by that. So repentance just simply means turning from one direction and going in the other direction. So when uh, I was on a a conference trip with a bunch of pastors from Northview, there was a couple of female staff members who had gone um, for dinner somewhere and they were on their way back to the hotel and they were taking the light uh, rail transit system. And they had missed the stop and they kind of gotten lost and they were like, oh, well, we'll just kind of take the train to where it ends and then come back. And so they're on this light rail train and as they are riding on this, they see more and more people kind of exiting the train but not more people entering the train. And they're kind of like, oh, that's a little odd, but like, no big deal. Like, it must be getting towards the end of the line so most people aren't going that way. And they go a couple more stops and as this one person is getting off this stop, he, he comes over to these two women and he says, you might want to get off here at this station. And they kind of look at him and they're like, what do you mean? He's like, past this station, you cannot guarantee that all will be well for you going forward. And they're kind of like, oh, interesting. So they decided to get off the train and take the next train going back towards the hotel. That's repentance. It's saying, I'm going in one direction. And I am now going to turn around and go the opposite direction. Okay? So that, we can call that the behavior, right? They, they got off the train and turned around. The behavior changed. But there's more to repentance than just changing behavior. Right? Our hearts also need to repent. So uh, before I got married, I was kind of meh towards Christmas decorations. Um, I didn't put them up. I was like, oh, I got to take them down then. And then I got to put them away. So meh. And then I got married and I inherited a slew of Christmas decorations. There is a like, closet under the stairs full of Christmas. And so over the last few years... My heart has generally warmed to the idea of putting up Christmas decorations to the point where I now am looking forward to it. This year, I was like, wait, I'm actually wanting to do this? This is weird. I'm not used to this. That's a, that's a repentance of the heart, right? I was like, meh. And then I turned, and now I'm like, this is fun. Even though I got to take it down in two months, this is fun, right? My heart grew two sizes that day. Um, that's a repentance of the heart. And that is the larger part of repentance. See, I can change behavior. I can put up the decorations and my heart's not really in it. So what we're after is a repentance of the heart. And what Peter is calling the people to hear is to repent of their rejection of Jesus. See, the reason they killed him is because they rejected him as king. They rejected him as Lord. And they said, I would rather have you die than have you be king. And the same is for us now today. The same call is to repent of how we treat Jesus. Do you want him dead so he cannot be Lord of your life? Or do you want him to be reigning and ruling over your life? Those are your options. You are going one way where you are saying, Jesus, I want you dead so I can rule. Or you repent of that and you say, no, Jesus, I want you to be king. I want you to be Lord. I want you to reign in my life. That's the repentance. And the behavior will follow. Because if you make Jesus king, you now will submit to your king because your heart wants to doesn't mean you're going to do it perfectly. doesn't mean you're going to be amazing at it, but it means that now your heart wants to follow Jesus. So if, if you are here today and you're kind of standing on the outside of this whole Christian thing and looking at like, I don't know, Jesus, yes, no. The offer is to repent. Turn to Jesus. Repent. Turn away from your rejection of him and turn to him. And if you're a Christian here today, the call is also one of repentance. Martin Luther, uh, one of the great reformers, actually the one who basically kicked off the Reformation. We're gonna remember that November 1st. When he kicked off the Reformation, he nailed 95 theses to a door of a church in Germany. And the first one of those goes like this. It says, when our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, repent, he intended that the entire life of believers should be repentance. See, what Martin Luther was getting at is that what, what we struggle with is keeping Jesus on the throne. Right? Right? We sing hymns about how we are prone to wander, how we are prone to leave the God we love, how through the fallenness of our hearts, we put ourselves or other things back on the throne of our lives, and repentance is turning away from those things and running back to Jesus. And so as Christians, we do this as a rhythm of our walk of faith that we constantly are turning back to Jesus. We are constantly saying, Lord, I have wandered. Lord, I have strayed. Forgive me. I come back to you. So where is God prodding you to turn back to him? What is that thing that God is putting his finger on in your life and saying, come back to me? Repent. Turn to me as your Lord. So Peter commands them to repent. And then he says, be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus. So Peter picks up what Jesus had said to his disciples right before he ascended. And the last command that Jesus gave was go make disciples, baptizing and teaching them. And so Peter, knowing this is the command of his Lord, when they ask what do we do, he echoes that. Be baptized in the name of Jesus. So what is baptism? Well, it's it's a number of things, but primarily what baptism is is a sign that we participate in to show that we are with Jesus, that our allegiance belongs to him. So there's Sunday, there's football teams playing, some just south of here, Um, and men and women and children will wear the team's jersey. Some will go so far as to put on full pads and helmets when they go to these games. I've witnessed. I'm like, why? You're in the stands. You're not playing. Um, But the reason we do this is because we want to say, I'm one of them, This is how I want to identify myself. I am one of them. This is what baptism is. Baptism is saying, I'm putting on Jesus. But it's even more so that, it's not just saying I'm like with Jesus. It's now saying I belong to Jesus. Like Jesus bought me, right? I have died with Jesus, right? Romans 6, Paul says, when you were baptized, you were baptized into his death. You go under the water. You were buried. You died with Christ. When you come up out of the water, water, it's symbolizing and signifying the newness of life that you have in Christ and the hope of our resurrection to come. This is baptism. So if you are a Christian here today and you have not been baptized, can I encourage you be baptized Plant that flag. Say, I am team Jesus. He is my Lord. Like, baptism is a big deal outside of North America. There are people who think long and hard about it because when they get baptized, it means they are rejecting the faith of their community. They are saying, I am putting this aside and I am now with Jesus. So if you are a Christian be baptized. And if you have been baptized, we can look back on that moment. We can look back on that time where we went under the water and remember that that signifies how we died with Christ on the cross and how when Christ was raised out of the grave, we too have the promise of new resurrection life that is guaranteed in him. So let us remember our baptism because it helps us to remember what Christ has done. So the response that Peter commands is to repent and be baptized. And then he continues with the promise. And the promise is that be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit for the promises for you and your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. The first part of the promise is that God offers forgiveness of sins to those who repent and are baptized in the name of Jesus. Peter is hearkening back to that last line of the Prophecy of Joel, where he says, all who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Forgiveness of sins is salvation. Our biggest threat in this world is our sin. It is not the inflation. It is not the payments we think we have to make. It is not the disease or the dysfunctional relationships That is not our biggest problem. Those are problems. But our biggest problem is our sin. There's this great story uh, in Mark's gospel. It's the beginning of Jesus' ministry. And Jesus has been touring uh, around the Sea of Galilee. He's been healing people. He's been preaching. And one, uh, one day he's gathered at a house with all his disciples. And there's this crowd of people that have crushed into this house. And it is shoulder to shoulder, body to body. There's not a lot of room in this house. And Jesus is teaching there. And these four guys are like, Hey, our buddy, he can't walk. So what he needs to be able to do is to walk. So they pick up the the stretcher and they begin to walk him over to this house. They get to the house. They're like, well, that's going to be hard. Like that's like a stretcher with a dude on it. We're not going to get it through. They're like big brain idea up on the roof. And then we can drop him in. So they take the stretcher, they get it up to the roof, they open the roof, they drop their friend in front of Jesus hoping that Jesus is going to like lay his hand on him and the guy's going to get up and start dancing. And the thing that Jesus says to him when he's dropped in front of him is not get up and walk. Son, your sins are forgiven. See, the needs that we think we see are often not the needs that Jesus is trying to address. And the biggest need that Jesus is trying to address is our sin. Now, yes, Jesus does command the guy to get up and walk, but only so that everybody standing there knows that Jesus has the authority to forgive sins. See, Jesus is in the forgiveness of sins business first and foremost. And the way that he does this is by doing and going to a cross. So the thing that Peter accuses all of these people listening to him of, the killing of Jesus, is actually the thing that's going to save them. Right? They crucified Jesus. He went to a cross. He bled and died. And that's the very act that's going to purchase their forgiveness. It's the very act that purchases our forgiveness. See, Jesus goes to a cross and he dies so that we might live. Jesus bears the full wrath of God so that we might receive the full blessing of God. Jesus is condemned so that we may go free. Repent and believe and be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins. And this forgiveness is absolute and complete. David, when writing about the kind of grace that God shows, in Psalm 103 says this, God does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is the steadfast love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, So far does he remove our transgressions from us. I don't know if you stood on the edge of the ocean lately or on a mountaintop recently. But when you do those things and you look out at the expanse in front of you, how far is east from west? Like, do those things even come close? No. No they're not even in the same realm anymore. And that's what God does with our sin. We stand over here and God says, okay, I'm going to take your sin from you and I'm going to put it over here so that they're not even like in the same ballpark. Your sins are gone. They are forgiven. They are washed clean because of the blood of Christ. Jeremiah 31 says it in a, slightly different way. It says that God does not remember our sins against us. God forgets our sin. He chooses not to remember it. So, if you are sitting here under a burden of guilt and shame for whatever it is you may have done in your past or recently, know that God has removed that. Come to the foot of the cross. Let him take that burden off of you and walk free in the gift of God's forgiveness he has removed that from you the guilt is gone, forgiveness has come, he doesn't remember it why should we but there's more to this promise than just the forgiveness of sins he also promises that God will give us his spirit the Holy Spirit. And notice the language that he uses. He says, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Gifts aren't something you work for. Gifts aren't something you earn. Gifts aren't something you trade back and forth. A gift is given. So imagine that you work for me and on payday, I go to all of you and hand out your paychecks. Because I still haven't figured out how to do the online banking thing. So I'm handing out paychecks. And as I hand them out, I say, This is my gift to you. And you're like, Awesome. So you open your envelope and you pull out your paycheck, you put it in your back pocket, and you open your envelope again. And you're like, You said there was a gift in here. Like you said, Here's your gift. So you open it, but there's no gift. Like I earned my paycheck. That's not a gift. Pretty terrible boss if you think that's a gift. Like I earned that. But if I hand you an envelope and I say, here's my gift to you and you pull out your paycheck and you open your envelope back up and there's another check in there. That's not your pay. It's a bonus. It's on top of, that's a gift. You didn't earn it. You didn't trade for it. Simply out of the generosity, I gave it. And this is what God does with his Holy Spirit. Right, He fulfills the prophecy of Joel by pouring out his spirit on his people. And now that we have the Holy Spirit, he does a number of things in our hearts. Right, He first opens our eyes to see the beauty of Christ. He, he opens our eyes to be able to see how good God is so that we would turn to him. He confirms that we are now sons and daughters of the king, right? Paul talks about how we have received the spirit of adoption. And the spirit also is a confirmation that what God has promised to do, he will finish. Right? God has promised to bring us back to life to remove sin from us and the Holy Spirit is the guarantee given to us that God will fulfill that word. So we receive the Holy Spirit as a gift. And then lastly, there's the proclamation. And with many other words, he bore witness, that's Peter, And continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Notice that once Peter has exhorted and encouraged the people to be baptized, to repent for the forgiveness of sins, and receive the Holy Spirit, his message doesn't change. He doesn't say okay I've talked about repentance I've talked about forgiveness of sins and now I've got to find something else to talk about The proclamation is the same save yourselves from this crooked generation Right like a good preacher it says he with many other words but the message didn't change The proclamation stays the same Jesus Christ was crucified, he was raised from the dead, and any who trust in him, who call on his name, will be saved through the forgiveness of sins and the gift of the Holy Spirit. That's the proclamation. And it's fundamental to the Christian faith. Without it, you don't have a Christian message. There's this great uh, story about Vince Lombardi, who was a football coach of the Green Bay Packers in the 60s. And one training camp, he pulled all of his professional football players, some who had played for years professionally, into the locker room, and he held up a football. And he began with, this is a football. And from there, he began to talk about the fundamentals of playing football. And all of these professional football players were like, yeah, we know. Some of them joked as they realized what was going on. They're like, coach, can you just slow down a minute? I'm trying to take notes. But the point was taken that if you want to be a good football team, you have to start with the fundamentals. If you're going to preach a Christian message It has to start with the death, resurrection of Jesus, and the free offer of forgiveness of sins to all who believe. Without it, you don't have a Christian message. So don't be deceived. If you hear somebody preaching Christ and all they are doing is saying, yes, Christ is going to help you fulfill that dream that you have, that destiny that you think God has given you, but there is no mention of Sin, repentance, forgiveness, that is not a Christian message. That is self-help with Jesus on top. Or some will say, come to Jesus, your best life now. Maybe not. Look at the world around us and how it is increasingly openly hostile to those who profess Jesus. Come to Jesus and it may cost you your job. Come to Jesus, and it may cost you friends. It may cost you family. It may cost you the reputation you so admire. Best life now? Maybe not. Best life then? 100%. The Christian message doesn't change. Christ crucified... To wash sinners clean is the fundamental message that we must proclaim. Uh, I had a pastor, I don't remember who said it, um, but the line was, What you win them with is what you win them to. So if we think that we're going to get people in the doors by softening the message or tweaking the message, you're not winning them to the gospel you're winning them to something else so if we want people who are going to be saved we must proclaim the fundamental message and notice what happens when peter continues to preach that message that those who received his word were baptized and there were added that day about 3000 souls I want you to think, in the first century, that's a lot of people. That's not a small number. That's revival beginning to break out as the word of God is proclaimed. So would we be the kind of people who want the word of God proclaimed so that spirit-filled repentance can break out amongst the people here? Would we pray to that end that God would accomplish this? Would we ask him to bring about revival in our day? See, in that day they had crucified Christ and the disciples thought there's no way they are going to come to the one whom they killed. And in our day we look at the world and we think there's gotta be no hope. But there is. Because the spirit works as the message is proclaimed and he will save his people. So let us remember the message and proclaim it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I am so thankful for your word and that you reveal to us how we are to respond to you. Father, we ask that you would empower us to respond to receive the promises that you have made. And Father, we ask also that you would empower us and equip us and encourage us to continue to proclaim that message. Father, would you fill us with your spirit? In Jesus' name, amen.